All right. Good morning, everyone. I'm try and use this mic. Hopefully, you can hear me. If not, oh, Jesse's up there. Good. You, you can turn me up or down. <laughs> Based on whether you can hear me, not whether you like what I'm saying. <laughs> so, welcome to the Corns. I got to say hello to, to Mrs. Corn, but not to Brother Corn. So, uh, we're excited about VBS. Uh, I'm glad you folks are back. Welcome back. Um, we were just discussing it was 2019. You were here last, correct? A whole pandemic ago. (laughs) Good to have you back. VBS is exciting, a little tiring, probably more so for you than (laughs) the rest of us, but uh, glad you're back. Looking forward to that. And I believe, brother, you're preaching the next, uh, the morning service. have that straightened out. So I'm looking forward to that too, brother. But before that, I want to continue with uh, Sunday School. Uh, what we've been studying, is for, uh, starting last week, of course, during, during our, uh, our Corn Festival Parade Week, which is you know, not, not necessarily in your honor, but it works. Um, we started studying uh, this subject, which is increasing your faith in the Bible, and we were considering the questions of, do you believe and trust the Bible? Can you believe the Bible? Can you trust it? Um, Last week, we studied uh, Isaiah 53. We were looking at prophecy, specific messianic prophecies. We looked at Isaiah 53, and we learned that uh, through the science of probability, that it is a virtual certainty, number one, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, written about in the Old Testament, and number two, that the Bible was inspired by God, just based on probabilities. Just to to give you a little recap for those that maybe weren't here, I talked about that number. What we learned was that there is a 1 in 1 to the 17th power, that's 100 quadrillion chance, that men, in their own wisdom, could have predicted just eight specific things about the birth and life of any one man from Old Testament times to present day, of course, in their own wisdom, I illustrated that with the example of having silver dollars spread out two feet deep in the state of Texas. You might remember that. Okay? It takes about 100 quadrillion silver dollars to make a pile two feet deep over the entire state of Texas. If you do that and you mark one of them with an X, then you have a blindfolded man travel as far as he wants, as far as, far as he wishes, eventually bending down and selecting one silver dollar, hoping to get the one marked with an X. His chances of finding the right one are the same as the chances that the writers of the Old Testament could have predicted just eight specific facts about any one man hundreds of years before he was born without divine intervention. You see, they were able to accurately write the Old Testament scriptures predicting the future because God told them what to write. That is what the Bible says happened And it's the only plausible explanation for things like this. These numbers aren't even fathomable to us. And we also saw statistically, uh, being an engineer, I like numbers. I don't know if you like numbers, but I I like numbers. (laughs) And statistics in particular, we learned uh, on the same subject that it is absolutely inconceivable that the writers of the Old Testament wrote prophecies about the Messiah in their own wisdom that they could have gotten not eight, but 48 specific things correct about any one man. 
You might remember the example of the electrons I gave you last week. Okay. <laughs> we, we had to change from silver dollars to electrons because silver dollars are entirely too large. And using that example, I demonstrated that the probability that the Old Testament writers could correctly predict 48 things about any one man, hundreds of years before he was born, was so infinitely small that it's actually an impossibility apart from God. The chances, not being 10 to, 1 in 10 to the 17th power, but 1 in 10 to the 157th power, which is not even, we, we can't even comprehend the number, that is a number which is far beyond the number. Remember I told you about what the, the, the largest named number is what's called a Google. It is 10 to the 100th power. We're talking one chance in 10 to the 157th power that they could have predicted things in the Old Testament about Jesus, 48 things, that, that all came true in the person of Jesus Christ. So you see, hum humanly, it's just uh, absolutely impossible. Uh, that number is considered far beyond infinite. We don't, we don't write that little infinity symbol. The, a Google, 10 to the 100th power, is the largest named number because there is no practical use for numbers above that. That's well above that. So the Bible predicted those things that we talked about last week. And if you remember, one of the things I told you about was the... Sorry, I have a lot of things I'm shuffling up here. Using this book from Josh McDowell uh, called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he doesn't just chronicle 48 prophecies about the Messiah. He chronicles 61, which makes that number way larger than it is. The chances being one in whatever that number would be. All of which were fulfilled in one man, Jesus Christ. Not eight, not 48, but 61 chronicled here. And that's just messianic prophecies. Okay? There's a lot more prophecy than that in the Bible. I'll talk about that here in a few minutes. So that alone proves beyond a shadow of a doubt, statistically, mathematically, that God inspired the writing of the scriptures. Can you trust it? No. I think you know what I think, but I want to continue on down that road. We still have this week and two more weeks to study the subject uh, in the month of August. So we're going to do that uh, to build our faith in the scriptures. If you're not yet saved, you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, maybe this will help you see that what it says in the Bible is the truth. If you're saved but you haven't really studied the Bible, this will hopefully build your faith in the Bible and the truth that's in it. It's, it's absolutely accurate. If you're saved, you've been saved for a while, you understand the Bible, it should build your faith too. I'm going to give you some pretty incredible examples. Today I'm going to focus on just one. Um, but what I want you to remember is that the theme verse that I started with last week was John 14, 29 which were the words of Jesus himself. And he said, I, I, And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. See, God gave us prophecy so that when we see it fulfilled, we might believe in him and in his written word, the Bible. Okay? That's why he gave us prophecy. So let's look at the next point, which is more prophecy. Not messianic prophecy this time, but I'm going to talk about an example in the Bible that is a prophecy about history and historical events. You see, God, in his infinite wisdom, can predict what's going to happen in the future. He, he's done it many, many times. So let me start uh, with telling you that in 
the book of Ezekiel, chapter 26. As a matter of fact, why don't you turn there? In Ezekiel 26, there's a record of an amazing prophecy. This one fascinates me. It's about the ancient city of Tyre. Tyre was a city that was built partially on the mainland and partially on land. Okay, So there's, there's a bit of background here. I'm going to explain to you some of the history because most people haven't studied this part of history. It's uh, something that maybe you got in high school and you don't remember it anymore if you paid attention. And the other thing is that Christians tend not to study this time in history because most of what I'm going to talk about here happened not only after the, it was written in the Bible, but it happened during those 400 years of silence between when the Old Testament was written and when the New Testament was written. So we tend not to study those. Though. We're studying the Bible, right? Which is There's a 400-year time in history that we tend not to look at an awful lot. So I'm going to start out. The reason I have the lapel mic is so that I can see this as well and point out some things. Okay? This is just to get you calibrated. Most of you are familiar with uh, it's a partial map of Israel. This is in the, uh, a time at the time of Jesus, okay, uh, about the time that he uh, ascended to heaven. Uh, the reason I want to show you this, and I don't know if you can read it, I just want to point out some things that are probably familiar to you if you're a Bible reader, and familiar to you if you've ever looked at the maps that tend to be in the back of many of our Bibles, right? So down here we have the Dead Sea, we have Bethlehem and Bethany, and we have the uh, Sea of Galilee up here. We have the regions of Judea and Samaria and Galilee. We have uh, Nazareth, uh, where Jesus spent his childhood. We have Capernaum up here, where Jesus, a lot of Jesus' ministry took place, around the Sea of Galilee there. But what I want you to notice is that to the northwest of Galilee is a place called Phoenicia. And you might remember from reading the scriptures that there are some cities up here called Tyre and Sidon. Those are important cities when it comes to looking at some of this prophecy that we're going to look at today. And as I just described to you, Tyre, we're going to focus on it. Tyre was a city, if I zoom in on it, that was built in two places over history. Okay? What we're going to read here in a minute that happened in biblical times happened here. See where it says Old City of Tyre here? But there's a island over here called the New City of Tyre. Okay. And I want you to know that. You can ignore everything else on that map, except to notice that the coastline, if I, if I back up to here, so this coastline that you're looking at here, obviously, is this coastline, and then the island has its own coastline. Okay. They're separate then. So what I want you to do is to, to pay close attention to what it says in Ezekiel 26, and I'm going to tell you what God said, and then I'm going to tell you what happened in history regarding this city. Okay, So go to Ezekiel 26. Let's read uh, the first, well, well, we'll read about nine verses here. The Bible says, And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, because that Tyrus, that's the city of Tyre, hath said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken, that was the gates of the people, she is turned unto me. I shall be replenished. Now she is laid waste. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus, and will cause many nations to come up against thee, as the sea causeth his waves to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyrus and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. 
It shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. And it shall become a spoil to the nations. And her daughters, which are in the field, shall be slain by the sword, and they shall know that I am the Lord. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyrus Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, a king of kings from the north, with horses and with chariots and with horsemen and companies and much people. He shall slay with the sword thy daughters in the field, and he shall make a fort against thee, and cast a mount against thee, and lift up the buckler against thee. Now skip down to verse number 12. And they shall make a spoil of thy riches, and make a prey of thy merchandise, and they shall break down thy walls, and destroy thy pleasant houses, and they shall lay thy stones and thy timber and thy dust in the midst of the water. So from these verses, we see there's a lot of prophecy there. There's even more if you continue reading the chapter. A lot of things that God said were going to happen to the city of Tyre. He even tells you why. But what I want you to understand is that these things were written down by Ezekiel, as God told him to write them down in the year 586 B.C., so 580 years before Christ. That is, by the way, the same year that Jerusalem fell. Okay? Do you remember Jerusalem fell to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon? And they took the, the Israelites captive, right? Okay. I don't want to go too far into that story because there's, there's a whole story here. It's really interesting. So I'm just going to pick on five. There's more than this in this passage, but I'm just going to pick on five um, prophecies that God gives here in, in this passage of Scripture. Number one, that Nebuchadnezzar would destroy the mainland city of Tyre. You saw that in verse 7 and 8. It says, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyrus Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay? And he goes on to say that he's going to come, he's going to slay with a sword, and he's going to bring uh, chariots and horsemen and companies of of soldiers, basically. Okay. So there's one. Number two, many nations would come up against Tyre in successive waves. Look at verse number three. It says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus, and will cause many nations to come up against thee, as the sea causeth his waves to come up. How, does the, how do waves come up on the sea? One after the other. Waves. Okay. That's an important piece, because he says many nations will come up in successive waves. Number three, God would make Tyre like a bare rock, flat like the top of a rock. It says in verse 4, And they shall destroy the walls of Tyrus and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from thee and make her like the top of a rock. Uh, the fourth one I'm going to use today, fishermen would spread nets over the site. In verse 5, it said, It shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. And then the fifth one, the debris, the debris from the city, stones, timber, dust, would be laid in the water. That's at the end of verse 12. And they shall lay thy stones and thy timber and thy dust in the midst of the water. So Ezekiel wrote that down in 586 B.C. One year later, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Tyre. It took him 13 years to conquer the city. And I'm going to read to you again, because uh, he chronicles this, uh, Josh McDowell, in his, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He writes this about that occurrence. 
Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to mainland Tyre one year after the prophecy. The Encyclopedia Britannica says, after a 13-year siege from 585 to 573 BC by Nebuchadnezzar, Tyre made terms and acknowledged Babylonian rule. In 538 BC, so 35 years later, with the rest of Phoenicia, Tyre passed to the rule of Persia. Okay. Now, some of you are familiar with the kings of Persia. I'm not going to go deep into that, but you might remember from the Bible, um, there was the King Cyrus. He was the, really the first one. He took over from Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Then there was another one I can never remember his name. It's an odd name. Um, but then there was King Darius the first, and then Xerxes. If you're a Bible reader, these are familiar to you. Then there was King Darius the second, and then there was Artaxerxes, and then there was King Darius the third. Okay, the seventh king of Persia. Okay, that's important because not only has Nebuchadnezzar in 585 taken over Tyre, mainland city Tyre, as I showed you on the map there. After 13 years, he, he basically wasted the city. And then it took another 240 years for the next thing to happen. So while we're going through those seven kings of Persia, Alexander the Great was coming to power in Macedonia. All right. So that was the next wave, was Alexander the Great. Okay. I have just a little lesson for you. If you don't know your history, I don't mean to be standing in front of everybody here. So if you don't, who studied Alexander the Great? This is one of those things I must have studied in school, but I don't, really don't remember much about it. Again, this is happening between the Old and New Testament, so we tend not to look at it a lot in church, right? <clears throat> so Alexander the Great came to power, uh, I believe it was 331 or 332 B.C., okay? Uh, and his hometown was Pella in Macedonia. He amassed an army, and he decided to go into Asia Minor and attack Asia Minor and take it over. He crossed into Troy, and then I don't know if you can read right there, there's a, there's a town called Granicus. Granicus is where he first encountered the Persian army because Darius, had, who, who lived in Babylon, had taken over this whole area for, for Persia. So the first encounter, military encounter, that, that Alexander the Great had was against not Darius III himself, it was his army and his generals. And Alexander the Great, he won a decisive victory. He just crushed them. That was the first battle of Alexander's conquest of Asia. Then what happened is that they were so, so uh, mostly dead, <laughs> they, they, uh, the, the rest of the Persians retreated and ran back to Babylon. And so Alexander the Great, just proceeded through Asia Minor without any real resistance. When he got to this town here called Issus, he made a decision. What he decided to do, since you understand Alexander the Great does, did not have a navy, but the Persians did, actually from the Phoenicians, which are part of the Persian Empire under Darius, right? Darius III. He decided to pass down along the uh, eastern shore of the Mediterranean to take over the cities that were port cities for the Phoenician navy under Darius's control. Okay? He wanted to take that over because he didn't have one. He had, 
you understand that if you have a navy and there's an army on land, you can kind of come in behind them anytime you want and just go attack them, right? And Alexander didn't want that to happen. So what he did was he started going down through that coast and taking over cities. Let me read to you again about that. In his war on the Persians, writes the Encyclopedia Britannica, Alexander, after defeating Darius III at the Battle of Issus, marched toward, uh, southward toward Egypt, calling upon the Phoenician cities to open their gates, as it was part of his general plan to deny their use to the Persian fleet. When he got to Tyre, he took over several cities along the coast. When he got to the city of Tyre, the citizens of Tyre refused to, to acquiesce to Alexander's rule. And Alexander laid siege to the city. Possessing no fleet, he demolished old Tyre on the mainland, and with the debris, he built a causeway 200 feet wide across the straits separating the old and the new towns. That's an artist's depiction, but here we would have the soldiers uh, that are the, the Tyrians, if you will, and this is on the island city, there's the mainland over there. When Alexander got to the old city of Tyre over here, they refused to let him in. So what he did was he built this causeway. Guess where he got all the materials from? He leveled the old city, and he built that. And he built towers on the end. It's a fascinating story. I don't really have time to get into the battles that happened there and how the, how the, uh, the people of Tyre were attacking Alexander. Eventually they lost um, Alexander killed most of them, many thousands of them, sold the women and children into slavery. Um, so I'm going to kind of stop there. Now, just so you know, um, one thing I didn't cover, this is just a piece of history that I think is important to know. Remember when I was talking about the Battle of Issus up here, which was the first time that Alexander had been surprised. He had turned to go south along those port cities, and what... what uh, 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 Darius the third did he came from Babylon came up behind him just south of Issus and surprised Alexander's army with twice as many soldiers as Alexander had and Alexander again crushed him and King Darius actually ran Alexander at that battle captured Darius's wife his two daughters and his mother who had come with him to watch his great conquest and Darius lost. Darius eventually lost his life. We're not going to cover the rest of it because we're going to stop in Tyre and talk a little more about Tyre and what the Bible has to say about that. But before we talk any more about, I don't, I don't know that I want to talk too much about Alexander just for time's sake, uh, but it's a re remarkable thing that happened because we've had Nebuchadnezzar come in and wipe out the old city of Tyre on the mainland. We've had Alexander the Great and his armies come in and wipe out... He, he, he took the old city of Tyre, leveled it, and built the causeway here so that he could attack the now island city. Okay. By the way, the, the, the people of Tyre went to the island city during the 13-year siege of Nebuchadnezzar hundreds of years before that. Okay. So that's why they, were, they had fortifications out there. Um, so then what happens, let's forget Alexander. Alexander goes on and he dies. Right? He, 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 he dies pretty young. And what happens next is a successive wave after wave of other nations that attack and conquer Tyre. After Alexander 
was killed. What happened was some of his, two of his generals in particular, which you've probably heard of, took control of two regions. Okay? One was the Ptolemies. Right? They became the Greek, the Greek rulers of Egypt. If you've heard that in history before. The Seleucids are the other ones. They kind of took over Babylon in that area. Those were the names of his generals. That's where those names come from. <clears throat> but the Ptolemies, after Alexander's death, came from Egypt to Tyre, attacked it, and took it over. Then, after them, the Muslims came and attacked Tyre and took it over. And then it was time for the Crusades. The Christians came and took it from the Muslims. And then the Muslims came and took it from the Christians. And then the Christians came and took it from the Muslims. And then the Muslims again. And then the Christians again. You, 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 what I'm hoping you're seeing is wave after wave after wave. Okay? Until, until present day... Oh, I didn't even read you this part. Hold on, let me, let me back up a little bit. This is just some more observations uh, regarding Alexander the Great. This is just, I think I, think I said it, but just to make sure. Um, Philip Myers made an interesting quote here regarding, this is regarding uh, Alexander. Now, he's not a theologian. He's a writer of textbooks is who he was. He says this, it says, Alexander the Great reduced Tyre to ruins... He recovered in a measure from this blow, but never, I'm sorry, she recovered, Tyre recovered a measure from this blow, but never regained the place she had previously held in the world. The larger part of the site of the once great city is now bare as the top of a rock. That's what he wrote. A place where the fishermen still frequent the spot and spread their nets to dry. John C. Beck keeps the history of the island city of Tyre in the proper perspective. He says, the history of Tyre does not stop after the conquest of Alexander, Men continued to rebuild her, and armies continued to besiege her uh, until finally, after 1,600 years, she falls and never to be rebuilt again. In present day, this is something written about Tyre today by a, a person named Nina Judigian. says, the Sidonian port of Tyre, I'll give you, that's the northern port here. The Sidonian port of Tyre is still in use today. Small fishing vessels lay at anchor there. An examination of the foundations reveals granite columns of the Roman period, which were incorporated as binders in the, in the walls by the Crusaders. The port has become a haven today for fishing boats and a place for spreading of nets. The, de the destiny of Tyre, according to the prophet, is a place where fishermen would spread their nets. The existence of small fishing village, uh, uh, the existence of a small fishing, fishing village there. Um, upon the site of the ancient city of Tyre does not mean that the prophecy is not fulfilled, but is the final confirmation that the prophecy was fulfilled. Tyre, the mistress of the seas, the trade and commercial center of the world for centuries, passed away, never to rise or be rebuilt again. The fishermen drying their nets upon the rocks that once formed the foundation of the ancient metropolis are the last link in the chain of prophecy that Ezekiel gave over 2,500 years ago. Now, <laughs> today, that's, if you were to look at a, a map or a satellite image of Tyre, that's what it looks like today. Um, you see the, the main feature that wasn't there before. I told you to pay attention to the coastline. This is now the coastline. Because what's happened over all the centuries is the causeway built by Alexander just got expanded. Okay. The site of the original city is flat. There's nothing. It's in there. 
Nobody ever rebuilt that city. So I just want to go back very quickly and look at the prophecies that God told us were going to happen. Just, just the five that, that I mentioned. We mentioned that Nebuchadnezzar would destroy the mainland city of Tyre in verses 7 and 8 in Ezekiel 26. Did it happen? It happened. Historical fact. <clears throat> Many nations would come against Tyre in successive waves. I just told you all about that. That happened. Historical facts. Well documented. God would, or God would make Tyre like a bare rock, flat like the top of a rock. And in order to uh, attack the island portion of the city, Alexander the Great decided to build a causeway. He actually filled in part of the ocean. And to do this, he used all the rubble from the mainland city. He literally removed the city and made it flat. Fishermen would spread their nets. Well, I just gave you a couple of modern references to people that have written exactly that is what has happened. And number five, the debris from the city, the stones, the timber, and the dust would be laid in the water. Okay? Alexander took the old city of Tyre and put it in the water. <laughs> That's what he did. Okay. So yet again, we see another example here of something from history that was predicted by God and Notice that the passage of Ezekiel starts, that's why I wanted to start in verse 1. If you're still there, uh, it says, And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me. What's Ezekiel saying happened here? God told him this, that this was going to happen. Look in verse 3. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God. Okay? There is no question here that the Bible says God is the one that said this was going to happen. I don't know that Ezekiel even understood what he was writing. I think a lot of the writers of the Bible didn't. Right? God was just inspiring them to write, and they wrote it down, as they should. But what's happened is that all of it, not just the five, but every pro- there's several prophecies here. I'm just not covering them because I only have a short time here. All of them were fulfilled in minute detail over the course of history. I'm not going to talk probabilities again. That was last week. Um, but the probability of this sort of thing is also astronomical, that it could even ha- that somebody could predict it in their own power without God telling them what to write. But it happened because God told them what to write. So, again, I'm just going to ask you the question, what does that say about the reliability of the scriptures? Okay. Can you believe it? Can you trust it? Again, I know what I think, but I want you to draw your own conclusions. That's the best way to learn, in, in my opinion. Okay, so I'm just picking out a few examples here. We talked about messianic prophecies. We talked about uh, this prophecy of Tyre. But I wanted to share this with you. There's a book titled The Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy. Uh, It counts 1,239 Old Testament prophecies and 578 New Testament prophecies for a total of 1,817 prophecies given by God in the Bible. It could be more or less, you know, that. I haven't counted them, so you know. Now, not all, but most of those have been fulfilled already. They've come to pass, just as God said that they would. Now, you all remember the theme verse, right? John, uh, John uh, 29, or 14 and 29. And now I have told you, before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you might believe. God said he gave us prophecy, 
so that when we see it fulfilled, we might believe in him and in his written word, the Bible. So in case you're wondering, there's always critics out there. I just said that most, but not all, of the prophecies in the Bible have been been fulfilled. Oh, yeah, well, see, you didn't get them all right. No, (laughs) no, no. They're future prophecies, things that haven't happened yet. The second coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, the millennial kingdom, etc., 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 etc. Those are future prophecies. Now, God continues to fulfill other prophecies. Pastor Cole has talked about that not too long ago, about some of the things in the news recently that, that, that look like the fulfillment of prophecy. Um, but in the timeline of the Bible, the very next thing to happen is the second coming of Christ. Christ comes in the air to capture us away. That's the next thing. So if you're not saved today, if you haven't trusted in Christ, you need to seriously consider that today. Don't leave the building. Trust in Christ as your Savior. If you don't know what that means, talk to me afterwards, or any number of people I'm sure would be willing to explain that to you, and what, what the Bible actually says about that. Why do we always say what the Bible says? Because you can believe it. That's certainly my opinion. It's, it's uh, infallible. It is 100% correct and accurate. Now, I don't really have time to start into the next subject, which I didn't really think I would. Um, so we've studied Messianic prophecy. We've studied a little bit about uh, his, history and history uh, uh, events in history. I've told you the number of prophecies approximately that there are in the Bible. So I wanted to switch to the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Now, I don't have time to get into that, but I do have about four minutes. So I just want to share with you a story uh, that I remember from years ago when I got saved. I didn't get saved until I was 32 years old. And I have an older brother and I have a younger brother. Okay, And I remember, uh, shortly after I trusted in Christ, I was trying to explain. At that time, one of my brothers lived in Atlanta? No. He lived in Cleveland then. And the other one lived in, uh, was it New Mexico then? <laughs> They've, they both moved around. <laughs> so, so they didn't live close by. But we were together for some holiday. I don't remember what the holiday was even. But I was trying to explain to them that I was now a born-again Christian and that I believed the King James Bible to be without error. I believe it to be infallible. Now, I was a young Christian, so I didn't have all the, the, the good arguments right at my fingertips. You know. Now, I don't remember which one of my brothers said this, but I do remember this conversation like it was yesterday. when they, One of them said, but you're an engineer. You understand science. Are you telling me that you no no longer believe in science and you just trust whatever the Bible says? Okay, let me ask you what you would say to that. Think about that for a minute. What would you say to that? Some of you that are mature Christians know exactly what you should say. (laughs) I answered it this way at that time. I said, no, I still believe in real science as opposed to what the Bible calls science falsely so-called. God invented science and all the, you know, the laws of nature, they, they govern it. That's still my view, more than 20 years later. Uh, and that's 20 years of study. I'm a studier. I study and study and study and study. I have read this thing through, I don't know how many times. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not even going to try and guess. Uh, but I have studied it and all kinds of information around it. And that is still my view. 
I uh, would answer the question a little differently today. Do I believe whatever the Bible says? Yes. 100% of it. Not pieces of it. All of it. Can I explain all of it? No. I can't even begin to understand the mind of God. But based on that, there's some things in the Bible. Now you understand that the Bible is not a scientific book, right? But when it writes about science, it's always accurate. And there's some amazing things in there uh, from different parts of science, the science of astronomy. I believe Brother Kelly has talked on that quite a lot, right, in, in past Sunday school lessons, for example. Um, from the science of geology, uh, from the science of biology. And I'm not going to get into the examples, but next week we will. I'll give you some of those. And that won't take very long because I think we've talked about the scientific accuracy of the Bible quite a lot. I think Pastor's done that. I know Brother Kelly's done that. Uh, I'll give you some examples that maybe you haven't heard before, maybe you haven't noticed before. Um, and then what, what I'm going to do is then move on to uh, the historical accuracy of the Bible. I just gave you an example of historical prophecy where God said this was going to happen and then it happened. I'll talk next week about history. God didn't say that this was going to happen, but in the Bible there's several things recorded, lots of detail about history. They weren't predictions, they were just things that had happened. And you can always look at them and say, hey, that's exactly what happened. That is what happened. It matches with what we know of history from other sources. Okay? So I'm done. Um, let, let's just pray, and, and, uh, and we'll look forward to Brother Corin preaching the next service. Father in heaven, Lord, I just want to thank you for this time. Lord, thank you that we could uh, spend a little time looking at the prophecy. Lord, we, we want to trust in you, Lord, and in your, your Bible with our whole being. Uh, Lord, uh, I just pray that you would help us to have the faith to do that. Uh, Lord, I pray that this uh, Sunday school uh, course, Lord, over the next couple of weeks would help us to increase our faith. Uh, Lord, and I want to pray, Lord, for any that, that uh, still are skeptical, Lord, that you would show them the truth. Uh, Lord, we now pray for uh, the service to follow. Lord, I pray for Brother Corn. pray that you'd fill him with your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, the junior church coming up, Lord, that you would use the workers downstairs, uh, Lord, to reach the children. Uh, Lord, and we thank you uh, that uh, we have Bible, uh, Vacation Bible School this week, and Lord, we just look forward to what you're going to do there. We pray for the salvation of souls, Lord, and uh, Lord, maybe even some decisions to, to follow you uh, or to give lives to you, Lord, and the children. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for this time, and we'll thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.